Father God, we come as a people who are indeed broken and weak. We've sung this morning of a powerful Savior, and we've delighted in that truth. We acknowledge, Father, we need a powerful Savior because we are powerless ourselves. Father, I want to pray for those of us this morning who are coming to worship you with an awareness, with a knowledge of the brokenness of this world. We're feeling the sadness, the heaviness, the weightiness of life in a world that is broken and fallen. Father, I pray that the word this morning would be a source of encouragement and hope. Father, I pray for all of us that you would give us grace to respond, that as we learn, we would grow in our obedience. Even where the obedience is nothing more than simply calling on your name, acknowledging our weakness. Give us grace to hear, to understand, to believe, and to respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I wonder if you've ever heard the, uh, is, is it okay? I don't, I don't know if I'm going to use, is that okay? Is, you can leave it. I don't mind either way. Uh, I wonder if you've ever heard someone give you the counsel if you're trying to live, trying to figure out how to live life. Uh, they say, well, you should imagine your funeral. Like, think about the day of your death. Imagine your funeral and imagine what it is that people will say or what it is that you want them to say at your funeral. Imagine your own eulogy. Someone standing at the front and saying, this is what his life, this is what her life was about. This is what they lived for. And imagine, what is it that you want them to say? What is it that you want to be remembered about you? It's, it, it can be helpful advice, a helpful thing, a, a, a thought experiment to try to imagine what, what would it actually be like to hear people talk about my life. The, the goal of that exercise is, is to change how you live now, right? I, I wonder um, if you've ever had this experience where you go to a funeral and it's someone you thought you knew and then you hear the eulogy and you're like, oh man, I didn't know that person nearly as well as I thought. You hear the story of where they were born, what they were born into, where they lived, how they died, and, and these stories from their life. And you're like, oh man, I wish I had known these things while they were still alive. If you could somehow in, in, in somehow establish time travel where you could go ahead to someone's funeral, so I mean, it seems weird. Picture the person beside you. Picture their funeral. If you could like picture someone's funeral and then come back into time now, having heard the whole story of their life, you know what I think it would do? With that perspective of their life, I think it would change the way you relate to them now. Having greater understanding of their life, in all its scope, would change the way you interact with them today. My, my goal this morning is to give us a bit of a eulogy on prayer because, frankly, I need my relationship with prayer changed today. I need some perspective for my relationship with prayer so that it'll change today. So my goal together in our time is to think about the birth and the life and the death of prayer, to give prayer a kind of a eulogy so that our relationship with prayer now will be changed. My goal is to stir up urgency, confidence, and knowledge of both what and how to pray. 
So the first question, if you're going to write a eulogy for someone, is you want to ask where were they born? In what context were they born? What was the situation they were born into or out of? That's going to give you some perspective, right? I wonder if you've ever known a, a hoarder. Um, or if you've seen like stories of it on TV, maybe a miser, someone who like holds on tightly, like they've got so much money, but they hold on to it so tightly, they don't want to let go of any of it. A lot of times, um, if you find out the backstories in people's lives like this, there are explanations. People who grew up in wartime, people who grew up in a Great Depression, people who grew up the, the child of an immigrant family who came here with nothing, and we learned to hold on tightly and to treasure. It, it shapes how we grow up. If you ever get to know someone, you're like, I wonder why they respond. Like, why do they do that? Why do they respond that way to these circumstances? And then you get to know their parents, and you're like, oh, okay. Uh, I see their family of origin. I see where they came from. When you understand where someone comes from, it explains to you a little bit about why they are the way they are. So the question for us is, where was prayer born? What was the context into which prayer is born. We've already read the verses in Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, the first time prayer is mentioned. You'll notice, right? If you're reading through the Genesis account, you read through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and God creates the world, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Everything is according to plan. Everything is in its place. Everything is as it should be. It is wonderful, and there's no prayer. Man walks with God in the cool of the day. He's together with his wife. The two of them are naked and unashamed. Prayer was not originally part of God's creation. But you know the story. Adam and Eve fall into sin. They're deceived by the serpent. They take the fruit of which God said, you shall not eat of it. And our world is plunged into chaos and into despair. Into the world that we now know outside the Garden of Eden. A world that's full of thorns and thistles, frustration, discouragement, despair, and death. And it's into this world that prayer is born. Prayer is born into this world where there's brokenness, but where there's also a promise. From from the time that man had sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, When God is pronouncing to Adam and Eve what this life is going to be like in a fallen world, even as he's pronouncing the curse, he gives a word of hope that a child, a seed of the woman would be born, who would be a deliverer, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would overcome sin and death. Promise that there'd be a child of the woman. That's, That's why Adam even before Eve had children, named her Eve. For he said, she is the mother of all the living. He believed the promise of God that one would come from the line of the woman who would redeem, who would save. He believed it. That's why there's great hope, by the way, at the beginning of Genesis 4, when Abel is born. Because, hey, we were told that one was going to be born of the woman who's going to come and deliver. And now there's a child who's born of the woman. He's going to be the one to deliver. But then Cain kills Abel. It seems like hope is crushed. There is despair. 
But then again, there is rejoicing in our text. When Seth is born, she says what? She says, because God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, another seed, one who's going to come. This one maybe will now be the deliverer. But as Abel came and went, so Seth comes, has another child, Enosh. One generation turns into another. The people of God are beginning to realize that though God has made a promise, there's a delay before the deliverer comes. It's easy to just read these chapters of your Bible and think that it's all happening pretty quickly. But, but in reality, we're talking about hundreds of years from the time of the promise to the time of Seth and then Enosh and their lifespan. We're looking at close to a thousand years from the time God gave the promise. And it's at this point, you ever have that experience where you make a mistake? Like, um, like so for example, as a dad, um, one of the things I would love to do with my kids, especially when they were little, is wrestle. And so this is a classic dad thing, right? You're like, you're wrestling with your kids and you're having fun and they're climbing over your head and then, and then like inevitably one kid falls on another, like one falls over your head or something and they're like, and, and you think, oh, ha and then like there's blood and you're like, oh no, and like this is, and, and you realize like, oh, that was probably worse than I thought, you know? Um, but but you, you know, as you get older, those mistakes that you make and you think like, oh, it's okay. And then you have that moment where you realize like, actually, this was far worse than I thought it was. Adam and Eve are having this realization settle in. They have sinned, but God promised a deliverer. But now generation after generation, there is murder and death and the passing of time and the growth of the thorns and the thistles. And as they realize that this world is hard, and that there's a long delay before the coming of the promise. This is where prayer is born. What are, what are prayer's parents to sort of use our metaphor a little further? The, the, the first parent is, is simply realizing our powerlessness. Uh, as Adam and Eve and, and Seth and Enosh and, and their descendants, as they realize this world is going to keep going and there's nothing we can do to fix it and it's just going to be like this, as you realize your own powerlessness, this is part of what gives birth to prayer. But it's only part, right? Because if all you realize is your powerlessness, then you're going to end up like Judas. You realize the hopelessness of the situation, and you can't see any further. You hang yourself. That's an honest assessment of the world if there's no hope, because frankly, you can't fix this world, and neither can I. But we need two parents. The reality, the truth of our powerlessness needs to be married to the promises and the power of God. A realization that God has in fact given a promise and he is powerful and faithful to fulfill his word. And when the knowledge of our powerlessness is married to the knowledge of his power and promises, this is what gives birth to prayer. Calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on God himself who gave his word to fulfill his word to do what he said. People began to call on the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, you have, you have given us a promise. We can't bring it about. Only you can. Show us. Sh- 
show us that you're faithful. Bring the deliverer. This is, uh, this is true in the narrative. It's true in our own lives too, right? Like if, if we look... Uh, if we look honestly at our own situation, why is it that we don't pray? Well, typically it's because we're deficient in, in, in one of these two things. We, we typically are, are deficient sometimes in our knowledge of our own powerlessness. We often live like we are somehow powerful people. We're intelligent and we live in a part of the world that's relatively affluent and so we should be able to fix things. And so the problems, the problems that I'm dealing with in my life, again, me being selfish, I largely just think about my own problems and I think, well, what can I do? I need a bit more money. I need to find a better career. I need to make some changes in the way my family's running. I need to do this. I need to do that. And the problems, the scope of our problems often as we consider them are limited simply to things that I think I can fix and I'm unaware of the reality that I'm actually powerless and in need of God's grace. But sometimes, friends, what we need to do to realize our need for prayer is to stop just looking in the mirror and look around at the people around us. If, if your church is anything like our church, there are, there are people who come into church on a Sunday morning who are desperately clinging to hope. And they don't know if they're going to make it. They made it to church this week. They don't know what next week is going to look like. There, there are marriages that you look around and, and, you know, they're sitting together so it looks okay. But this week they've talked about, can we keep going? Or is this the end for us? There are people wrestling with addictions, whether that's to drugs and alcohol or to sex or to gambling. There are people who are feeling and keenly aware of their own desperation. Okay, now take a step back from beyond just our immediate church family. Think about the world that we're living in. If the past two years has not shown us that we are hopeless by human ingenuity, by human strength, by human smarts, then I don't know what will. Friend, we live in a world that cannot be saved by humans. If we get our heads out of our own situations and stop being so self-centered, immediately we realize that it's not just us, it's this whole world that is in a desperate state. Desperately in need of God's intervention. Desperately in need of prayer. Sometimes we don't pray because we're not aware of our own powerlessness. So we're not aware of the need. Sometimes we don't pray because we're not aware of God's power. Or maybe we don't think that he wants to reveal his power. Maybe we don't think that he wants to actually save, that he wants to intervene, that he wants to give his grace. Can I just remind you that if Adam and Eve are going to call on the name of the Lord here in Genesis 4, it's because God called on them first in Genesis 3. When they sinned, when Adam and Eve took the fruit, when they ate, do you remember? They didn't get up and go to God. They didn't go find him and say, oh no, we messed up, we need mercy. They were hiding, they were running. It was God who came looking for Adam and said, Adam, where are you? God called out to him first. God is the one who seeks. God is the one who longs to show his mercy to you. He is the God who longs to show his grace to us, who longs 
to show his power to us as he fulfills his word and keeps his promises and brings deliverance to his people. So where is prayer born? Prayer is born in our desperation. It's born as a result of the marriage between our powerlessness and God's power, his power and his willingness to fulfill his word. Well, where does prayer live? Where does it grow up and mature? Where does it flourish and thrive? If there's some... Um, there's, there's something funny that happens. If you know someone really well, and then you see their baby picture, it's like, is this, oh, this is so cute, right? Like, because you can see, you can see this person who you now know as an adult, and you look at what there was as a baby, and you're like, oh, yeah, I see how that became that. Like, like I, was, I, was, I was really sad to see me here shaved his goatee, but like, so like, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't look at me here's baby picture and see like, oh, yeah, there's a goatee. But you could see like, at least I don't think. I haven't seen his baby picture. Uh, but you could see how this is going to become this, right? But you can't do it the other way around. Like, you can't look at me here now and then imagine what he looked like as a baby and be accurate. I mean, you could take a guess. But, but, but what happens is what, what you're going to become as a human, it's all there even as a baby. And the same thing is true with prayer. Whatever we see here, the simple reality that they had a promise from God and they called on his name to fulfill it, that is what prayer is. And everything is going to grow. It'll change. It'll develop. It'll mature. But everything that prayer is, is bound up in that simple baby picture. But what does it become in Scripture? We don't have time to go through the whole of the scriptures. What I want to do is, is kind of like, again, at a funeral, you know how they have the pictures up where you can look at the pictures? Or sometimes they'll have, like, uh, the boards put together and you can go through and see the pictures. I just want to give us a couple pictures of prayer in scripture as it grows. And what we're going to see is simply this, that prayer lives. Prayer lives in our longings. Our longings for God to fulfill his word. Think about the longing for a place that Abraham experienced. Genesis chapter 12 reads this. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, okay, here's God's word. Here's a new promise from God that he's giving to Abram. To your offspring, to your seed, I will give this land. So he, Abram, built there an altar to Yahweh. He, he believed the promise. He believed it. So he builds an altar to worship, built an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there, he built an altar to Yahweh. And what did he do? And called on the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, you've given me a promise, so what am I going to do? I'm going to call on you, call on you, call on your name. Do what you said you would do. This is how Abram responds to the promise, even while he doesn't have it yet. Look at how the verse finishes. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. He doesn't have the fulfillment of the promise, but he's got the promise. So in longing for the fulfillment, in longing for the day when the promise will be true, he calls on the name of God, do what you said. God's people continue to long. They long, even as God said, they would go into slavery in a land that was not their own, into Egypt for 400 years. In Egypt, they longed for redemption. So we read this in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. That is, he recalled to mind his promise, the promise of relationship, the promise of deliverance that he had given to his people, that he had sworn to his people. They cried out to him and he remembered his word and what did he do? He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. They had a promise. They called on God. God remembers. And God delivers his people. He brings the promise. There's a blessed simplicity to this. In our longing, in our experience of the brokenness of this world, we remember that God has promised to deliver. God has promised to save. We call in his name. As as the... Old Testament narrative moves on. You move on through the scriptures. You flip a few pages in the scrapbook. You move on to some new pictures on the board. You pick up different things. I want to add one other thing. Psalm 116 adds this. The precious faith-building practice of not simply recalling Yahweh's promises but the past occurrences of his deliverance, the times when you've seen him come through in the past in order to build faith for the present that he has not abandoned you now so that you can continue to pray now. Psalm 116, verse 1, I love Yahweh. Why? Because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, what will the psalmist do? Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. Here's what he prayed. Simple prayer. Oh, Yahweh, I pray, deliver my soul. I was in trouble, but I remembered God. So I called on God and he delivered me. So what does he do now? What does the psalmist do now? In light of remembering the fact that God saved him in the past, what does he do in the present? Verse 12, what shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. He saved me in the past. He heard me in the past, so I'll call on him today. Verse 17, again, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. If God has saved, God will save. So what will I do? I'll worship him and call on him to prove himself faithful and powerful. If I'm looking for future deliverance, for faith, for future deliverance. There's no better place to look than to the past to see his past deliverance. If he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. I, I hope you see how this begins to apply to us even more explicitly as Christians, this side of the cross. See, the initial promise that God had given 
that Adam and Eve and their descendants were responding to when they called on the name of the Lord was the promise that God had given in Genesis 3 and verse 15. He, the serpent, shall bruise your head. And, or, he said the, the, the deliverer will bruise his head, the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. There was one who was going to come and crush the head of the serpent, one who is going to crush the one who has the power of death. And all the promises and deliverances in between, the promises to Abraham, the promises of land, the promises to the people to redeem them in the Exodus, the promises to David to save God's anointed one, all of them were interim promises holding the people over until the time when the great promise, the promise of the ultimate deliverer would come. And that promise has been fulfilled because Jesus Christ, the seed of a woman, took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. And he lived the righteous life that we were powerless to live. And he died in our place on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin. He suffered and died, and on the third day, he fulfilled the promise and crushed the head of the serpent and rose from the dead, proving his power, his faithfulness, and his willingness to save so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise that's still available to us today so that regardless of where you come from, if you come into this place and call on the name of Christ and ask him to save you, he is faithful to keep his word and he will save. For us who put our trust in Jesus, this should build faith. If he has saved, he will save. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you realize how mind-blowing this is? If the greatest deliverance has already been brought, if the greatest price has already been paid, if the greatest love has already been shown, why would our God, with all his power and all these promises, abandon you now? But he's calling on you to call on his name, to ask him to deliver you, and to bring his deliverance to this world. Now, practically, this, this can be hard, right? This experience of saying, okay, so I believe that God has saved me, and I believe that he's faithful and powerful, so I want to put my trust in him. I know that prayer, as, as we're talking about it, is the calling on the name of God to fulfill his word, to keep his promises to me. Okay, so I understand that, but how do I actually do that in my specific situation? We can get caught up in the complexities of our situations sometime. We think about our own financial hardships or our battle with anxiety or physical health or the unsaved family members that we love. And I think there, there are promises that Christians can cling to in each of those circumstances. But I think sometimes it's more helpful to start with the basics. I want to kind of give you, as you struggle, because a lot of times in those moments where we're trying to pray, we're trying to relate to God, sometimes we need basic, simple truths that we can cling to 
I want to give you three basic sort of promises that we can cling to in prayer regardless of our situation. And this umbrella, these umbrella promises should cover us at least to get the ball rolling, okay? Here's the first one, simply this. If prayer lives in our longing, as I said, then what are we longing for? John 14, 13, Jesus says this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That purpose, purpose statement, why? Why will it be done? Why will it be done that the Father may be glorified in the Son? So is your longing that's driving your prayer, that's moving you to God, is your longing that God would be glorified in you? Can you take whatever situation it is, whatever context you're in, whatever you need deliverance from, whatever you're praying for, and ask God, would you be glorified in this situation? He will answer that prayer. Do you long for God to be glorified in this situation? Here's a second longing that directs our prayer, that helps our prayers to flourish. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you long to bear fruit? Bear fruit that testifies to the saving work of the Son so that the Father is glorified in the Son and in you. Do you long for your life to bear fruit? Jesus, in this situation, would you bear fruit in me so that the Father would be glorified? You see, the longings the longings are bound up together. He gets glory as we bear fruit. Do we, but, but the question is, do we long for that? See, a lot of times the things that we're longing for in our situations where we're longing for deliverance is something simple like a change of circumstances. But God's heart is that you would bear fruit and glorify him. If our longing is to glorify him, if our longing is to bear fruit, God will hear our prayers. Here's one more. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you long most for a change of circumstances or to be made like Jesus? Because here's what God's doing in your circumstances right now. He's making you like Jesus. Do you long for that? Father God, make me like your son, that as I abide in him and bear fruit, you would receive glory. Make me like Jesus. 
These are prayers, friends. Listen, the God who created the heavens and the earth will move heaven and earth in response to these prayers. He will hear and he will act. You can know that with confidence and with assurance if you call on the name of the Lord according to his promises. Bring fruit in me. Glorify yourself in me. Make me like Jesus in this circumstance. He will hear and he will act. Prayer lives, though. It lives in the longings. So the question is, what are you longing for? Are you letting it move you to confident prayer? Now, no eulogy would be complete if we don't think about the death, right? We thought about birth. It's born in our desperation and thinking about our powerlessness and God's power. It, it lives in our longing, longing ultimately for the fulfillment of God's promises that we would be like Jesus and bear fruit and glorify him. But where does where does prayer die? It's a weird thought, right? Because prayer is like a holy activity. It's like a, it's like a good thing. So we don't typically like to think about the death of good things. I kind of think about it like this. Prayer, um, prayer will one day be to me something like Highway 6 is. Like, you know Highway 6? It goes, like, at least the stretch that I'm familiar with runs south from the 401 west of the city, runs south down towards the QEW to get down to St. Catharines. And, and, and the reason why I say it's like Highway 6 is because uh, Highway 6, that stretch is sweet to me. Uh, it's a sweet memory. When I was in college and I started dating this girl and I was falling head over heels in love, I was going to school in Cambridge and she was living in St. Catharines. And so what I would have to do is I would have to borrow my friend's car because I was too poor for my own car and I would have to get in it and I would have to drive down Highway 6 and that drive, whether driving down or driving back, was filled with all these sweet memories of, man, I get to go see my girl. Oh, man, that was so awesome. I'm so happy. I had such a great time. And so that place became a sweet place for me. But it's also a symbol of distance. Because eventually, if you said to me today, hey, do you want to go back to driving up and down Highway 6 to see your wife? Absolutely not. Because now, 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 I wake up in the morning and she's there. And I go to bed at night and she's there. And, and we have dinner together. It's amazing. She's with me. So, so Highway 6, is it precious? Yeah. Do I want it now? No. Not even a little bit because I've got what's better. Prayer one day will be like that to us. Oh, I remember that. That's when God seemed far and we called out to him and we needed him to come and to deliver us. But now we see him face to face. Prayer will one day be no more. Revelation 19 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Here's God's people. They're crying out to him now. They're crying out to him, but no longer calling on him in prayer for deliverance, for him to fulfill his word. Now what is it? Like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord. God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, the day is coming when the distance will disappear and there will be only intimacy. When prayer and all its longings will be swallowed up with praise and satisfaction. 
when the naked, shameful ones will be clothed and made beautiful. Those needing justice who cried out for it will receive it. Where sin and the curse of sin, death itself will be forever crushed and removed. Why is prayer dead? Because all the things that we cried out for, all the things that we called on the name of the Lord for, will have come to pass. Do you contemplate this? The reality, the certainty, the inevitability, the unstoppableness of this day that is coming. Revelation chapter 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. See, which symbolizes the distance, the, the fallen creation separating us from God. It is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What will the hand of God feel like on your cheek? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It will be made right. All the longings we've had for it to be made right. In all the situations where we didn't even know what it would look like for things to be made right. In all the moments of desperation and tears, it will be made right. Because the former things, the thorns and the thistles, the death, the curse, everything that we cried out to God for deliverance from will be no more. Do you believe that day is coming? On that day, in his presence, prayer will be swallowed up by praise. The one whose name we called out will be seen. He will dwell with us and we will see him face to face. If you believe that day is coming, do you know what you should do today? You should pray. Revelation twenty-two seventeen says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. So let the one who hears say, come. If you want this eulogy to change your relationship to prayer, Make your prayer this, Lord, you said, you said that this day was coming, so bring it. We long for it. We anticipate it. We long to see you. Would you pray that with me now? Father God, we acknowledge that there are many situations in our life, as we said, that we do not even know what the right thing is. We don't even know what it would look like for this situation to be fixed. 
And yet, Father, we acknowledge that you are altogether good, altogether wise, and altogether powerful. And the deliverance that we long for is a deliverance that you have promised. So, Father, we call on you in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. You have said that you will make all things new. Deliver us now. Prove yourself faithful. Keep your word. Until that day, we pray, come, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.